Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, both the Old and the New Testament, uh, the church is called uh, the house of God. It's not difficult to understand how that is, particularly through the eyes of the Old Covenant believer, possessing a tabernacle and a temple, both of which which were not built by the wisdom or direction of men, but in fact, uh, from instruction from God himself, so much so that these buildings were titled the house of God. But so is the church as well. The gathering or fellowship of the saints is also the house of God. And here, especially in Hebrews chapter 3, Both of these houses, in the Old and the New Covenant, are ascribed to in terms of glory and management, as well as the love for the people that reside within it, are all attributed to the Lord Jesus Christ. We can simply say that indeed, this church of which we speak is Christ's house. And there are two aspects to this. Uh, The first is perhaps the clearest of the two. Concerns the owner, the Lord of the house. Consider Christ Jesus. So the apostle opens chapter 3. And when we think about the church, perhaps we must admit for ourselves And in times in the past of our history or even of the the church history, that some have failed to consider Christ Jesus when they spoke about the church. They thought about her worship. They thought about uh, the sacraments. They thought about her office bearers, the church order, the confessions, all of which things are rightly precious to us. But the Apostle Paul reorients our mind again to say, Consider Christ Jesus. Do not think of yourself first and foremost. Do not think of what benefit the church exists for your sake or for your family. Nor even of how the church witnesses to the kingdom of God to the world. What's I or others may gain from her. What can the church do for me? How can it serve my interests? No, first consider Jesus Christ. And if we have any true love for the body of the Lord Jesus, we will do so. You might know that John Calvin in his Institutes speaks of two kinds of knowledge. The knowledge of self And the knowledge of God, and he says, whether we begin with the one, it leads to the other. And that is true with the church and with Christ as well. If you begin with Christ, you will be led to think of the church. But even if you begin with the church, you must be led to think of Christ. O believer, think on him. Think of him. All that a church is and all that a church church must be and all that the people are and all that the people must be are all bound up in him. 
We can see that in a number of ways in Scripture and, and in this chapter. First, we may think of Christ as the creator, the maker. Matthew Henry says, no less power was requisite or necessary to make the church than to make the world. The world was made out of nothing. The church made out of materials altogether unfit for such a building. When God made the world through his Son, as the one appointed by whom all things were made, there was nothing except what God himself spoke into existence. What Matthew Henry is saying is true of the church as well. Oh, indeed, there were people. Perhaps even in one sense, in a natural sense, there were willing people, some to contribute. If we might think back to the tabernacle, who would give of the offerings in order that that building may be fashioned, its poles, its stakes, its walls, its roofs, and the so on. But what were these people? They were slaves in Egypt. They had nothing and were nothing. And even it is confessed that they worshipped the gods of the nation from which they came. Abraham too. Father Abraham. Are we to ascribe the church to Father Abraham? Indeed, does not Paul say that we by faith are sons of Abraham? But Abraham was also an idolater. And he only came out of the Ur of Chaldees because the Lord called him. No, Jesus Christ is the creator of the church. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the church hath more honor than the church. Often today we, we may call upon someone who has talent or a group of people to build a home for us. And they move on to the next home. They don't own the home. The, per, the person purchases the home with money uh, available to them, finan uh, financed through the bank. But the Lord Jesus did not need anything of anyone to make for himself a church. He is its creator. In Zechariah 6, we read, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Here we have the issue of a branch or uh, the image of a branch, a natural picture. Said elsewhere to grow out of dry ground. No water, no supplement, nothing uh, given to him other than who he was and who, as we'll see, he was to his heavenly father. And from him came this temple. He has built this temple and the glory is his. And not only is he a priest, he is also the one who sits upon his throne. So secondly, as the owner and Lord of the house, we look at Christ as king. Verse 6, our text says he is over his house. He is over 
his house. He is not just within it. He's not just sitting in the pew with us as one of us. He's not just near, looking in on the church, sometimes passing by and observing and seeing if things are going according to plan and then leaving when he sees that everything is sufficient. And he is certainly not under his church unless we are to think of him as bearing it up under his strength and power. But he is over the church. Matthew 10, 25, he called himself master of the house. Yes, he is in the midst of the lampstands, but there he stands as the Lord of glory, holding those seven stars in his hand, directing to his angel the words that he would give to his servant John, who gave them to his churches to obey and do as he commands. Yes, he is near. He said he would always be with us, but he is the one to whom also all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Yes, he was born of a woman under the law, and so therefore like those who build up that house as precious stones. Yes, he came to serve and be a ransom for many, but not that he would be lorded over, but that he may be lord of all. That is why, as Reformed churches historically, and yes, still today, we insist that there is only one head of the church, and no pope and no man like the pope And no man with titles, and no man with credentials, and no man with pomp and ceremony, and no man with intellectual gifts or spiritual gifts, or no man of age and experience may take that role as Christ. Neither those within these walls, nor any without those walls, who claim rightful authority as granted to them, by God, the sword of justice in the land may rule the church. Christ alone is Lord. And yet, beloved, even as we saw this morning, when we consider the majesty of God, and his greatness which caused Daniel to fear, yet also this Christ too, like his heavenly Father, being his eternal Son, is not only the Master, is not only the King. And even as such, we read, he is as a son. He is as a son. Moses was what? Moses was a servant. He was an attendant. He was a minister. He was a prophet. But here, as the one who is Lord over the host, host, uh, sorry, the, the house, is the Son of God. And this Son has a loving relationship with his Father. And that relationship that he has with his Father is not temporary. 
It was not initiated in time, as if the Father looked out over all history and found the one within his church who was most faithful and then gave him that title to honor him. There's a sense in which we can say in terms of his role as a mediator, as Psalm 2 is exposited by the apostles in various places, that is true concerning his sonship. But there's also, of course, the aspect of his eternal sonship. As the eternal son of the Father, he was not adopted by grace as we are. And when we think of this son, we think of the father's approval of this son. And that the father is never dis- disapproves of his son, is never disappointed in his son. And sometimes we are disappointed in the church. And sometimes we are disappointed in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes we're disappointed in our leadership. And that will happen. Sadly, it will happen. And for that matter, we may also be disappointed in ourselves. But you will never be disappointed by Christ. For the Father's never disappointed and never disapproves of him. Why, when we think of him also as the mediator of which we suggested a moment ago, we remember these precious words from Isaiah 53. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. His son was given. He was given up. What good would it have done to us to have the God-man rule over his people when they were unreconciled to the Father? The Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 31, we ask, why is he called Christ that is anointed? We confess that he is ordained of God the Father and anointed with the Holy Ghost to be our chief prophet and teacher who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption. And to be our only high priest who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father. For us, and also to be our eternal King who governs us by His Word and Spirit, and who defends and preserves us in that salvation He has purchased for us. It is in Christ that it is possible that there be a church fashioned, yes, of sinners, fashioned of the most unworthy, those who at least to offer the Father, but the Father says, Ah, but this is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. He has died in their place. He has taken their place. And I love them, and I take them as my own, just as much as I love my Son, whom I have appointed over my house. And thus, secondly, we can consider ourselves as residents and members of the house. Let us begin then by confessing that we ought to remember our place. We cross the threshold of the church 
When we come together as God's people in our assemblies, communions, times of study and prayer, let's always remember our place. We reside here at the pleasure of Christ and no other. And he disposes, and opposes, and grants his gifts to whom he will. We are residents. We are occupiers. We are members of his house. And he must have the preeminence. Nevertheless, we are not merely residents. We certainly are not tenants paying rent. And certainly may it not be said of us that we are squatters here illegitimately or illegally. Notice the manner in which Paul speaks. He says, even though it's not our house, he says, whose house are we? And in fact, in the original, the we is emphatic. We are that house. Even if we be doorkeepers, we are in his house and we make up his house. We are those living stones built up as that precious inheritance. Because the Lord Jesus has composed us and brought us together for this purpose, to give glory to himself and to our Heavenly Father. What a wonderful privilege it is to be a member of a true church. How many in the world, we might say in a sense, potentially could be, if they would but come and profess the same common Lord. But they resist. Blessed is the one that the Lord chooses to bring into his courts. They do not come as of yet because the Lord has not called them internally by his spirit, though he may call them and does indeed externally by his word. There are many in the world who have not had the gospel preached to them. They don't know of this Jesus Christ by whom they may have peace. They don't know about his church. They have their traditions of their fathers. They live and die in generations ignorant and must stand naked and unapproved before God. They only have the knowledge and testimony of creation and of their conscience, that dual witness that labors together only to condemn. They don't know how to be accepted and to be brought into fellowship with the living God. But you and I do. You and I do. What does Paul call those to whom he writes? He says, therefore, wherefore, holy brethren... Or as he says in another place in this book, God deals with you as sons. There it is. We just spoke of Christ as the son in God's house. 
the one whose inheritance is the house, also considers us as his brethren. He considers us as equal to him with respect to that inheritance that he shares because he is gracious and he does not hold it to his bosom as something that is only his. We think of the the parable of the, the prodigal son and the elderly brother was upset that his father celebrated his return. Does the Lord Jesus Christ Look at those within the church who who by faith trust in the Heavenly Father as those who are not worthy of that inheritance that He Himself has gained. Absolutely not. He loves those whom the Father has given to Him. He died for them. Behold, He says, Behold, I and the children whom God hath given me. Hebrews 2, 13. Look at them. Look at them. Look at these people. They're mine. I rejoice in them. I love them. I care for them. That's who we are. That's who we are by faith. And we must have that confidence. Precisely because of how the author of Hebrews continues this very chapter. It would be remiss of me to ignore that because clearly that's the thrust of the chapter. The the latter two-thirds takes up this, this warning and this encouragement and this admonishment. And it begins in the latter part of our text in verse 6. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end? We might think by this word, if Paul throws doubt into the mix. Or simply for your sake, that you may doubt your standing because of these even inspired words. And indeed, there were some of a previous generation over whom Christ ruled. The wilderness generation. And they, when they received the word of God, the promise that was theirs, that they had every right to, as those who were included within that body, at least outwardly and visibly, they did not respond appropriately because they did not mix the gospel promise with faith. Rather, they persisted in unbelief. The church, the visible church, is called to faith, not to doubt. And even when we hear words from the pulpit, searching words, trying words... The purpose is not to to drive us away from Christ, but to make sure we stand in Christ. Because we know all too well through this example and many others that there are those who join in with the church outwardly and visibly, but not truly or inherently because they are not united to the master, the creator 
the son over his house. Paul does challenge us, the Holy Spirit does challenge us by these words, so that our calling and election would be sure, so that we can know, not that we can't know. For what does he say? He says, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He repeats himself in verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Some did not persevere in the promise as they received it because they didn't believe. So we must begin by faith. And clearly we must not merely have a, an outward profession of faith by which we say that these things are true of us or even true objectively of the church, however we describe or understand her, but we are saying that I believe these things. That I will not depart from the living God because he has promised not to depart from me. Why the word confidence there could be understood as boldness. And elsewhere we read about the boldness to enter to the throne of grace. Our majestic God on high who is willing and desires to grant grace to all who come to him sincerely. You see, it is the fault of those who shrink back. It is not the fault of God. It is the fault of those who waver at the promise and who cast doubt upon the heavenly king. Who think that when he offers rest for weary souls, that he either cannot or will not grant it. And they hold back. But those who by faith come with boldness because they know and are convinced by the Holy Spirit that God is who he says he is and that the master of the house is also whom he says he is. In fact, they know the voice of the Father through Jesus Christ. They see the Father through Jesus Christ. And they are acceptable to the Father through Jesus Christ. And these are those, as Paul also says, who rejoice. Those who are true uh, members of this house of Christ by faith are those who also rejoice. How do confidence and rejoicing go together? Perhaps the Apostle Paul meant to imply or to infer the very thing that that generation in the wilderness was guilty of. They were mutters, and they were complainers. We have no right to be here. We have no right to claim any inheritance of God. We have no right to claim any grace or, or any goodness of God. It is all of mercy. There's no room for, for boasting. There's no room for muttering or complaining. When we look at the church and we see it's less than we want her to be, 
and indeed it always will be, here while we await the return of the Master. There's no room for anything but rejoicing. Rejoicing in what God has done. Even if there was only one person here this afternoon. And we said that was a church because there was two or three people. There would be rejoicing, truly, wouldn't there? And look at what the Lord is doing here in this nation. I know we live in difficult times. Day of small things. But look what he's doing in this nation. He's calling his people. There are still people coming to Christ by faith. There are still people being reconciled. And in other parts of the world too. The spirit is moving. Christ is building his church. The gates of hell are not prevailing against it. Rejoice. Rejoice. We have hope, he says. We have hope. You cannot live without hope. But we have hope even as the world has cast off all hope or as the world builds on false hope. The world builds a home, a heritage for itself. The world builds kingdoms and nations and all of these will fall. The world builds a name for itself. Or makes a name for itself as the people of Babel did. And it will fall. They will be judged and cast into the lake of fire. They will depart in shame and and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because they tried either to come to God through their own means and ways. Or to glorify themselves without him. But the Christian has an eternal hope and he can stand firm to the end. And why is that? Because he builds upon the rock. The Lord Jesus challenged his generation through the words of Psalm 118. Speak about himself as the cornerstone. That is how the church stands firm to the end. That is how the believer within the church stands firm because Christ is immovable. Because all of the assaults of the wicked one, all of the attacks of the world will only bring about its own destruction. They will all break. They will all fall upon it. Be assured of that. Stand firm to the end. Because this house does not totter, and it does not fall. It does not falter, it does not waver. Not because of the people who make it up, but because Christ is the foundation. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the suffering of the cross. Precious people of God, rejoice in Christ's house. Be true members of this house. Receive all of its blessings, all of its privileges and responsibilities. Go forth and serve.